Open your Bibles with me, please, to the book of Mark. Our passage this evening is Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 32. Hear God's word. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him immediately, it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him, him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Our story today reads a lot like the stories you were taught to analyze in literature class. All the good stories have the exposition where you discuss the setting and the background and then the rising action where the problem comes into picture, and there's growing opposition, and then there's the climax, the most exciting part, the peak, the solution, and then there's the resolution at the end. The things return to where they're supposed to return. Our story today follows most of these elements, and we're going to analyze it in that order. Exposition, rising action, climax, and then resolution. We're going to find, though, the resolution is not what we would expect. The disciples are in focus here. The disciples are being taught by Jesus. The disciples are being trained to believe. And they're given a lesson today. And the question is, will they learn their lesson at the end of the story? So let's look at the context, the exposition. Ever since Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, which you'll remember follows right after the partial healing of the blind man. Blind man was healed in two stages. The whole point of that story was, was so that Jesus could show that the disciples partially see who Jesus is. 
And so as we're heading through these chapters here, the question is, are the disciples going to fully see who Jesus is, or are they going to remain partially blind? So Jesus is teaching them. He's really kind of taking them on a retreat. Even as he goes through Galilee here in verse 30, in verse 31, it says he didn't want anybody to know they were passing through because he was teaching his disciples. He's very intentionally showing himself to them and telling them about the king and about the kingdom. He also took them to Caesarea Philippi, to the villages around there. A little bit of an educational retreat in chapter 8. And he taught them there that the Son of Man was going to suffer. And he taught them that to follow the Son of Man means also to suffer, to deny oneself and to take up one's cross and to follow him. And he taught them then that the kingdom of God is going to come with power after all this suffering. And he gave them a glimpse of that on the Mount of Transfiguration. But then he reminded them, even after that display of glory, that the Son of Man has to suffer. This theme of suffering is very clear, and the disciples respond poorly almost every time. They rebuked Jesus the first time. They're confused, and and, and Peter made senseless comments. And they're also questioning and debating against Jesus' own words in chapter 9, verse 10. So we come again to a passage today. In our story, wondering, are the disciples going to get it? So let's look at the rising action. Here's the problem. Here's what Mark is trying to address. Here's what comes to Jesus. He comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration and he encounters a debate among the people. You got the scribes, you have the disciples, and you have the people. Something had happened while they were up on the Mount of Transfiguration. So still amidst the scuffle when Jesus arrives, everybody's still excited to see Jesus. So they circle around him and Jesus asks, what's this debate about? And so there's this no-name someone. Mark just calls him someone. Someone from the crowd. He speaks up. He speaks up. We'll just call this, this man the man. And the problem with the man is that he has a son with an unclean spirit. That's the first problem that presents itself here in this situation. Jesus walks into a tense situation and then is faced with this in particular. Here's a man with a son with an unclean spirit. And he says in verses 17 and 18, Teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. Now, Jesus had done many miracles before. There is no challenger in this instance, that is new to the book of Mark. There's nothing that we learn about Jesus specifically from this miracle. We actually learn more about what Mark is focusing in on is not the miracle itself, but the context of the miracle. Because this man had already gone to the disciples and they couldn't do anything about it. That's the focus of this story. That's the main problem. That's the big problem. We'll call it the other problem, and it's the disciples' inability. The man says, I asked your disciples to cast it out, this unclean spirit, but they were not able. He says, I brought my son to your disciples, but they didn't have the power. They didn't have the strength. All I know left to do is to ask you, can you do anything? So I bring my son to you. And the opposition grows because Mark makes it very clear that this is a powerful demon. The man had described the condition. It makes the boy mute. It seizes him. It throws him down. He foams and grinds his teeth and he becomes rigid and lifeless. And it happens right there in their midst because the demon saw Jesus' powerful presence. The demon convulsed the boy, threw him on the ground, made him roll about and foam at the mouth. 
And then in verse 21, Jesus asks, how long has this been happening to him? And the father's reply is, since childhood. This is a long-standing problem. Seems hopeless. Seems helpless. It's deep-seated. To first century people, the longevity of a condition correlated with the strength of the evil power. It's like a rusty bolt that becomes more impossible to unthread with every passing year. The longer the boy has been possessed, the less chance there is of the demon being dislodged. So the father says, if you can do anything, if you can do anything, please have compassion on us and help us. This is a desperate situation. The enemy is more than they can handle. He feels hopeless, truly wondering, can Jesus do anything? After all, the disciples couldn't. The greater problem than even this demon in this passage is the disciples' own unbelief. We know Jesus has the authority over all these demons. And the problem that Mark is really highlighting here is that the disciples didn't believe. When Jesus is presented with this problem, look at his response. He's exasperated. They've seen his power over the demonic. They've even cast out demons themselves. So what's wrong here? Jesus tells us in verse 19, and he answered them, Oh, faithless generation. The problem of the day can be summed up in that phrase, oh, faithless generation. Faithlessness, this this word means no belief, no faith. This is a generation that that does not trust. And this was spoken most clearly in this passage to the disciples because of their inability, because of the fact that they could not cast out this demon and should have been able to. They had a task in front of them. They couldn't do it. Jesus calls them the faithless generation. And whether he refers simply to the disciples or to the entire crowd is not sure. But we know that he's talking to the disciples and calling them faithless. They lack belief. And this belief is the very thing that Jesus had proclaimed from the beginning as necessary for entrance into the kingdom of God. He says in 115, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Trust this Jesus trust this object of the gospel, yet he's encountered his faithless disciples. That's the big problem. Oh, faithless generation, he calls them. And we've looked at this before. Faithless alone is quite an accusation, but to call them the faithless generation also calls in all kinds of other connections because this generation that has already been used here in the book of Mark is not a compliment. The generation is used to describe the Pharisees in chapter 8 as they demanded a sign. The generation is used to describe the stubborn Israelites, crooked and twisted generation. They are fickle and faithless. For 40 years, God says, I loathed that generation, the people who go astray in their heart. Like the people at the time of Noah's flood, they're called this generation where the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And Mark, in chapter 8, also calls this generation those who refuse to deny themselves. That's the disciples. They have no belief. They've refused to deny themselves. They are as crooked and twisted as the stubborn Israelites and humanity at the time of the flood. This is the rising opposition. The rising action. This is the growing problem in our story. 
The demon is a real enemy. The disciples are a faithless generation. So where is the solution? But we know, of course, as Mark always reminds us, bring it back to Christ. Bring it back to Christ. It's in Christ himself. So let's look here, the climax of the story. This comes in verse 23. Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus said, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. You've heard that phrase misused. If you just believe, all your dreams will come true. That is not what this is saying. Of course, we know that belief itself does not have power. We know that it is what the belief is in that gives it power. This, when Jesus says, for those who believe, this is set in direct contrast with the faithless generation of the disciples. He's calling the disciples to believe as he is calling the man in front of him to believe. Belief is the solution here, in part. Belief, also known as faith, it's the same word. It's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You know that from Hebrews 11. I like this definition from Tim Keller. He says, belief is the attitude of coming to God with empty hands. Coming to God with empty hands. Faith or belief, as the Westminster Catechism puts it, is receiving and resting upon Christ alone. It's receiving. It's coming to God with empty hands, with nothing to offer, but coming to Christ and taking what he gives. And it's assenting to the truth of the gospel, trusting Jesus to come through when we have great needs, and God works it in our hearts. Faith is not something you can conjure up. We've, you've probably wondered, wait, do I have the right kind of faith? People talk about it as if it's some kind of mystic idea that's really uh, impossible to describe. God puts it in our hearts to look to Christ and to believe him. Ephesians 2 says faith is the gift of God, not the result of work, so that no one can boast. So this boy's father, the man in our story, comes to Jesus with faith. He comes believing. He believes, but he also doesn't believe. He says something in verse 24 that I think every single one of us can relate with. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. I don't know if this verse has ever brought comfort to you, but it has brought comfort to me for so many years. Because I believe who Jesus is, but there's still so much unbelief mixed in my heart. Don't we all resonate with that? Don't we all believe in Jesus, but simultaneously need help with our unbelief? That unbelief does not disqualify you from coming to Jesus. Isn't this comforting? That God loves people who can say, I believe, help my unbelief. The very compassion and help that the man asked for, Jesus gave him. Not because of the strength of the man's faith, but because the faith was in the right place. There is no super Christian class of people who have their faith nailed down. 
We all together are crying out to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. This man didn't need a ton of faith. He didn't need a bucket of faith. He didn't even need a handful of faith. Just the smallest bit, as long as it's directed at Jesus. Because the effectiveness of your faith is not about the believing itself. It's about what is believed. It's not about the strength of your faith. It is about the strength of the one in whom you believe. You can't just have faith. You must always have faith in someone or something. Belief looks outward. Belief isn't about the belief itself. And so the thing believed must be reliable. And that's exactly what we encounter in this passage. The right belief is focused on Jesus, no matter how small it is or how great it is. Jesus is the real solution. Jesus says all things are possible for the one who believes And it is understood that that belief is in the person of Jesus. Jesus is the one believed. He is the object of faith. The boy's father falls down with empty hands, with nothing to bring except his miserable condition at the feet of Jesus to receive what Jesus has to offer and to rest in him alone. It is exactly the person of Jesus. It is exactly Jesus's strength. It is exactly Jesus's power and authority that make belief worthwhile. There's nothing inherent to to the believer that gives him power. It's in the Jesus believed that we find power. And therefore, all things are possible for the one who believes in the divine son of man, Jesus Christ, and what he is about. So Jesus does what was just moments earlier considered impossible and hopeless. He casts out the demon. He has compassion. He brings that help. It's a dramatic scene, but Jesus' power is seen because with his command, his simple command. He he tells the the spirit to leave, and he does, and then Jesus says, don't ever come back. Don't ever come back. And that's an encouragement to you and to me to remember that when Christ has entered and freed us from the bondage of Satan, he can never come back and possess us. We at that moment belong to Christ The boy appeared for a short time to be dead, and perhaps for those who still uh, didn't believe in Jesus in that case, their, their hopelessness remained. But by the touch of his hand, just like Jesus had raised Jairus' daughter, by the touch of his hand, he took him and raised him up and was restored to life. And that demon never returned to that boy. As Mark writes this, there's an air. We work through this story. There's kind of an air saying, hey, disciples, did you see that? Did you see the faith in action? It's not much faith, but it's faith in the right direction. Did you see it? And are you going to copy it? So let's get to the resolution. We've seen the problem solved. The resolution that we would expect is that the disciples see this display of faith and they finally, it clicks and they get it and they follow Jesus the right way. Jesus once again pulls his disciples into a quiet, private home, which he does often after these public displays. Even after they had so exasperated him, he brings them in again, sits them down. And this is consistent with God's character. That with people who don't get it, people who are stubborn, people who continue to walk away, God compassionately draws them near. This happens in Isaiah 65. God says, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people. They walk in a way that's not good. In Isaiah 63, in his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. Even that rebellious generation. 
and we see his love in Hosea 11, and we see it in the story of the prodigal son, where the father of the story who represents God rejoiced to see his wayward, sinful, wasteful son come home. And didn't see him, he didn't, he didn't bring him home as a servant. He brought him home and restored him to sonship. That's the compassion of our God for wayward people. And so the disciples are wondering as they're in this meeting with Jesus, why couldn't we cast out that demon? What was wrong with us that we couldn't do it? And Jesus says, this, cannot, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. The emphasis of that phrase is on the prayer part. It requires prayer. And what is prayer? But coming to God and trusting him. It's parallel with this belief. The disciples had indeed successfully earlier cast out demons, but at this point it seems that they have not remembered that it is their dependence on Christ that helps them to cast out demons. Because in that moment, they weren't praying to Jesus, asking that the power of God would help them to cast out the demon, or else it would have been successful. They must have been trying to do it in their own power. They must have been trying to figure it out. Jesus had gone up the mountain. Maybe they can take care of this so that by the time Jesus comes back down the mountain, they can have something to show. Look, Jesus, at what we've done while you've been gone. This prayer that they lacked is evidence of belief. It shows that you trust the one to whom you pray. It's not about itself, just like belief. It's about the one to whom you pray. Jesus reminds them that they needed to pray in order to cast out this demon, to depend on their God, because only there is real power and authority. So he gives them the answer. And then he gives them a second shot. It seems like a few random verses here tacked on at the end. It's verses 30, 31, and 32. seems disconnected. But here, Jesus gives the disciples another opportunity to put into practice what they just learned. He just taught them that it's about belief and dependence on Christ where there is power. And he explains something that he's already explained to them, that the Son of Man must die and rise again. And so he tells them again that the Son of Man is going to die. It's going to be delivered in the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. So we expect to see them here believe, to pray, to come to Jesus saying, teach us, O Lord, what this means. We believe in you. Help our unbelief because we don't quite understand exactly what you mean by this. Look at verse 32. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And we as the reader say, no, you missed it. It's okay to not understand the saying, but where do you go with that? You don't sit there and be afraid to ask the Savior who has just welcomed those who say, I believe, help my unbelief. You don't sit there and hide these questions. You run to him. You ask him the questions. He's the one who gives compassion. He's the one who helps. And so we, the readers, walk away from the story again, saying, are you ever going to get it, disciples? We ought to leave dissatisfied, feeling the tension between their closeness to Jesus, yet their persistent unbelief. Now, we can't stop there, or else we would be just like the disciples. 
we have to examine our own hearts and our own lives and ask the question, do we run to Christ with those questions? Do we go to Jesus when we haven't figured it all out? When we feel like we kind of believe, but we also know we don't believe, do we just kind of keep it to ourselves and are we afraid to come to Christ? Or do we come to Christ? First, as we look at our own lives, we have to know that who we trust becomes clear when we see who we turn to in times of questioning, in times of difficulty. Where do you find yourself when you're not sure, when you're afraid, when you're doubting? Where do you find yourself? There are all kinds of self-medications. There are all kinds of places we can run. We can run to academia. We can run to the bar. We can run to sleep. We can escape. We can run to friends. We can run to religion that doesn't even look at Christ. Where do we find ourselves? Let's not forget the God of compassion. Jesus will never turn you away in those moments. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out, he says in John 6. Let's ask, let's knock, let's seek from the one who gives good things. Matthew 7 says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And second, we have to remember this. Jesus is there for us in the exact moments that we're ashamed to come to him. Jesus is there for us in the exact moments that we are ashamed to come to him. When we're embarrassed or confused or facing something beyond us, don't we try to figure it out first? Think maybe we can get it in order enough so that when Jesus comes here, he'll be impressed, or at least so that my life is kind of put together before I come to Jesus. You know, when I was a teacher, many of you in here can relate to this. Parents, you as well. I was always saddened when a student would miss credit on a test or on an assignment because he or she didn't ask me for help. We think that to ask for help makes us look unintelligent or inferior. But as a teacher, I wanted my door to be open for students to come with questions, to know that I'm not just there to administer the test. I'm there to help you prepare for the test. Not just to take points away if you don't figure things out on your own, but to help you figure things out. Do we let Jesus help us figure things out? When we're confused, where you only kind of understand, and we think, man, I really should have this figured out by now. I've been a Christian for how many years? I should have this figured out by now. Well, let me tell you this. No one expects you to have the right answer to holy living, parenting, Honoring your father and mother, being a perfect representation of Christ at work, or proper worship. Nobody expects you to be an expert or perfect in any of those realms. All that's expected is dependence on Jesus, coming to him, to come to his word by his spirit to receive his compassion and his guidance. Or maybe it's sin that makes you feel like you're not worthy to come to Jesus. If you think there's no way Jesus would want to be near me with all the sin that I'm stuck in, or once I have the sin sorted out, then I'll be in the right place to get back to church or to talk to my pastor or to draw closer to Jesus. Let me say this. 
Jesus has always approached sinners in their sin. He has never once told a sinner to get his act together before he will draw near. God is in the business of drawing sinners near to himself. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more now that we've been justified, he will not push us away. It is exactly in the moments of great temptation and sin that we need Christ's presence. And he gives it to us by his spirit who dwells in his people. Or maybe it's straight up unbelief. If you think, I don't know if I believe X, Y, or Z about Christianity or about church or about theology, so Jesus isn't going to want me. Let me say this. It is exactly in this moment of unbelief and unsurety that you need Jesus the most. It is right here, bringing with empty hands nothing but your unbelief to the feet of Jesus. And it's right there that you will find his help and his compassion for those who don't have it all figured out. Come to him. Ask him for understanding and for wisdom, which he's promised to give those who ask him, and let him heal you. He promises to welcome you for the first time. If you've never come to him, he welcomes broken people. As you die to yourself and as you look to Christ for the very first time, he will welcome you. And he promises to welcome us for the seven times 77th time. He will welcome us again and again and again and again. You cannot wear down Jesus. Oh, believers, you cannot wear down Jesus with anything. Not your sin, not your repentance, not your confusion, not your struggles, not your tears, not your brokenness, not your unbelief. The only thing that will keep you from coming to him is your failure to draw near in those moments. Repent and believe. What a gracious, compassionate Savior that will welcome us when we say, I believe, help my unbelief. And he makes us whole and he picks us up and he gives us his righteousness and he will carry us to completion. Thank God for that grace.